Good morning, church family. Glad to see that you're braving the weather. That got quiet. My name is uh, Brandon Ziski, lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. Um, our desire is to be simply all about Jesus because we believe that when you encounter him, it legitimately and literally changes everything in your life. We believe without any shame, without any regret that Jesus is the ultimate desire of our hearts. And that's why this whole fall we've been looking at the concept of what does it mean to enjoy God? And we've been doing that through multiple different series, looking at it from different angles. And so we're going to wrap up this focus by actually just spending three weeks specifically looking at this topic of enjoying God. This is, I believe, one of the most significant messages, this series, this topic that you can ever hear. Because you will discover that this is going to describe your sole purpose of being. And my job and what I want to attempt to do this morning and also as we continue the series is to show you through scripture why one of our highest calls and one of our greatest duties and opportunities as a believer, as a human, is to enjoy God fully. Okay? And so that's what we're going to be doing this, these next three weeks. And so one of our core values here at Austin Oaks Church is to be captivated by Jesus. And it's not just like a cliche statement, okay? It's like we truly desire for all of us as a church to be completely captivated by the beauty, the majesty, the splendor, the glory of Jesus. Why? We always need to be asking that question. Why does this matter? Why should we care about this? And what does that even mean to be captivated by Jesus? Like, really? Like, have you ever felt that, like, ask that question? Like, when we talk about, like, you know, I got to know him and I got to love him more. Like, what does that mean? And what does that really look like? And what is it that God is trying to do in our hearts? So our goal and our desire as pastors is to help you see and experience this love that is found in Jesus, that he is worth everything in your life. Every desire, every pursuit in your life is to be found in him. Our desire as a church is for you to know him, not just intellectually, but emotionally, experientially, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see him, to know him, and to understand him. Because let's just be honest, we can be religious, we can be perfectly religious, and yet God could still not have our hearts. In fact, Jesus even warns us of that. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus, didn't we do this in your name? I, I never knew you. So we have to come to this understanding that God truly does. He truly does want us to enjoy him. And that can be a foreign concept because what I want to share with you is a little bit of my story of how when I was growing up, how I started to think about that. God wants me to enjoy him. I just went one plus one equals five. And my church experience was anything but enjoyable. So I went enjoying God. That's a joke. 
And so sometimes it's hard. And in fact, like, we should be as believers, like, come on. Like, we should be the most joyful people in the whole world. Like, like no matter how hard things get, no matter how difficult the circumstances are, no matter what, he is worth it all because we know the hope that's coming. We know all of the promises. We should be just radiating and oozing. That's a horrible word. Like overflowing with joy all the time. Forget that word. <laughs> yeah, he was right. I don't know where that came from. But yet, when we come into church, it doesn't seem to be the experience. And I think we need to ask ourselves a really sobering question. And it's not just church, okay? Let's, like, like, let's not just go here, this one hour of your week, we cease to be joyful. I think it's important for us to ask the question of our whole week, is Jesus truly the desire of our hearts? Is he truly our treasure. So as we dig into this series, I want you to know that like, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's hard to go, here's where I got this source and this source and this source and this source from. So I'm just going to give you a bunch of names and letting you know like these are people who have influenced this thought and this perspective and this message. So like, I studied Dr. Sam Storms, great, great, great uh, pastor, um, theologian, C.S. Lewis, tons of great writings on this concept. Jonathan Edwards, amazing, John Piper, Jack Deere, etc. There's my sources, okay? I want us, we're going to start this morning, it's going to be a little bit different, okay? So what I want to do is I want to prove to you, just through logic, that we were created for enjoyment. And we were created to ultimately enjoy him. So I want us to be thinking through this lens. And so I'm going to be asking you some questions. Are you with me? Okay? Because I, I know I only have a, a little bit of window to, to be able to unwrap this fully. But I want you this morning, if you're not a note taker this morning, I want to encourage you, become a note taker. Okay? Because I'm going to rattle off a whole bunch of verses. And this is like not my typical norm. I like to kind of sit in one or two passages and unpack that. But what I want to do is show you from cover to cover as best as I can how this is a command and a privilege and a joy that we get to enjoy him. Okay, so I want to encourage you in that. In fact, as I was studying this concept all week, I stumbled upon 2 Corinthians 1.24, where Paul says to the church in Corinth, like he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Okay, I'm going I'm to repeat that. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you, for your, and I would read this and I would immediately go, I would assume he would say, faith. I'm working with you for your faith. But it's not what he says. He says joy. Almost as if to give us an insight that joy and faith go together. That if we don't experience joy in our faith, then we have to ask a serious question about where our faith is. And who our faith is in. And he says this in other places. Like he says in Philippians, the same thing. It's like, I'm working on this, like, for your joy. And it dawned on me, I was like, this is discipleship. 
as we help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus, what we're really trying to do is help people grow in their joy of God. As people experience the joy in God, we get to experience greater joy in God. And so it's a mutual, joyful experience. I love this concept. So that led, led me to launch into this thought progression. Okay? And it starts here with this clear and obvious statement. Pursuing what we want is easy. And it's possible. Pretty simple. If you want something, you pursue it. You go after it. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes there's not a whole lot of prohibitions. Maybe it's the law. But sometimes we overlook the law to go get what we want. We pursue things. This is a fair and, a fair and easy observation of humanity. We are a people who are in constant pursuit, constant pursuit of delight, of desire, joy, happiness, pleasure. And we also know that our desires truly only know one word, more, more because they're never going to be truly and finally satisfied. They're insatiable. And that's why when we think, once we get this thing, or we get into this relationship, or we get this accolade, or we, we achieve this, like, oh, then I will have it. But it's so disappointing, because all you hear next is more, more. And what you thought it promised you isn't fulfilled. And so you're kind of left in this this what do I do now? And so a lot of times what we do is we go harder after another pursuit. And so then we start to look at, is this why? Could this be why I am constantly unsatisfied? Why I struggle with contentment? Is this why I'm anxious and worried? Why I'm fickle and half-hearted? Why is this why I'm also like full of hurts and wounds and scars in my heart? Is it because of all of these pursuits of trying to find joy? And it's always lacking. Is this why I feel at night sometimes very lost and disillusioned? Is this what it is? I thought it was more than this. I thought it would be this. But you just discover it doesn't satisfy. So you still feel this hunger inside of you, this, this thirst and this longing inside of you. And so to quote the ever infamous poets of all time, Bono from U2, which is better than Taylor Swift. <laughs> My daughter's in the room. Just saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. True? Blaise Pascal, he writes this, and I have this quote up here. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every person, and this is a hard one, but even of those who hang themselves. Here's the thing. If God exists, and he does, and if God created us in his image, which he did, then it's logical and true that we were created with an internal drive 
for joy and delight and pleasure and happiness. And so another way of saying it is this. God purposefully designed us to pursue happiness and joy. And at some level, that should be freeing. Because I know, I don't know about you, but sometimes in church we hear, man, pursuing desires. No, 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 no. This is a trap of sin. And, and so then we equate that to our pursuit of God. But actually when we discover a right view of God, we actually realize that he says, come on. We read Psalms like 1611 and it says that in your presence is fullness of joy and there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. It sounds like God is inviting us to be constantly satiated with him and by him. So we value most what we delight in most because we can look at what we pursue, what our pleasures are, and we can go, ah, here's a value. So that's why I say it's like if we say that we are captivated by Jesus, like does that reflect in our pursuits? Does that show up in what we spend and give our time and effort and money to? Like so we really have to have some honest conversation. Because what we discover here is what we desire and enjoy actually becomes a barometer or a measurement that reveals how valuable someone or something is. Okay, so for example, think about this. If I were to spend a night or a day with a really good friend and I ended up saying to him, like, man, I really enjoyed our time together. I I really just enjoy being with you. Right, like I hope he hears that I greatly value this relationship. And so therefore he knows that I delight in this relationship, right? And to not say that is then to almost like use this relationship for my own gain. But we value what we go after. We value most what we delight in most. And here's how Jesus taught this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Is he saying that these are bad? No. He's talking about priorities. Don't don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. These things like vanish. They go with the wind. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Here it is. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And when we hear the word heart, we immediately think of the word love, which is right and good. And so when we think about what we love, we should also be connecting quickly. What we love is what we enjoy. So when he says where your heart is, is where your treasure is, if that's the case, then I love that treasure. And so that's what I ultimately enjoy. You with me? So we have to really do some internal work. So if we go all the way back to our origins, to how God created us, and how he purposefully designed us to pursue joy, we have to ask, why did God even create us just so he can watch us be miserable some people believe that I spent probably about 18 years believing that some days I'm tempted to still believe that to be honest 
God is love. And love instinctively leads to creating. Love creates for the sole purpose of sharing that with others. And so God, okay, like, follow with me here. God supremely enjoys himself above all else. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Like, God's greatest pleasure is himself. His greatest enjoyment is himself. And it is only right that it is so. Because if it's not, then that would then proceed to say that there's something greater than himself. And so he has perfect and unadulterated, pure joy and love that he wanted to create others to be able to experience that love and that joy. And so he created us with this desire to find our joy, our satisfaction, our desires in relation to him. God alone is infinitely beautiful. God alone is infinitely good. God alone is infinitely powerful and all wise and self-sufficient in his holiness. Like he's majestic in holiness. Like all of these things, like this is him. God has to be pleased with himself above all else. And so then what is the greatest thing that God could create someone for? Or what is the greatest gift that God could ever give someone in order to reflect his love and his joy? Aren't we then tempted to think of a thing or a circumstance or a situation like God if you did this, the grass is greener, then I would really know you're for me. But the greatest thing that God can give us is himself. So we need to change how we see things. Ephesians 1, verse 6. And I encourage you to read the verses surrounding it, but I want to just pull this one out. We were created to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one, which is Jesus. We were created to the praise of his glorious grace. This is our purpose. We were created as an expression of his glory. This is absolutely beautiful. And this is like, like not just like, oh, yep, I know this, God's this. This is, this is not like, you know, just an objective knowing of something beautiful, right? There's like one experience if you see a sunset in a painting. It could be from the greatest artist in the world, and it could be beautiful to you, but you didn't experience it right? You see it, and you can take some facts about it, and you go, oh, it's a sunset. Sunsets are beautiful, great, but you've never been moved by one. And so when you're like, let's just say at the, the Dominican Republic, and you're on one of those cliffs, and the ocean is crystal blue, and the sun is setting, and it's majestic of purples and oranges, and all different, great, different colors that you, you only read about in Revelation, you're like, oh, you have no words, and then because we have these dumb phones, we want to take a picture of it and miss it. But now you've experienced it. And you took the picture for the sole purpose of 
sharing it. This is our purpose. Tracking? It's okay if you're not. <laughs> this is why we were created. So as I was thinking on all of this, I found myself asking two questions. And these two questions took me into the rabbit hole of my past. And the questions were this. Why is it then that we don't often strive to find our fullest and deepest desires in him? Why? And then the second question came. Why is it that religion or Christianity, not everywhere, please don't hear that, like, not everywhere, but in some real general sense, why does it often seem as dull and boring and restrictive and burdensome? Right? Like something feels off. Like this shouldn't be the case. And so I started thinking about my early concepts of God. And I'm telling you, it wasn't one that led to the conclusion that God wants me to enjoy him. It actually led me to the conclusion that God is constantly disappointed with me because I'm never going to be good enough. And even when I start to make some strides forward, I will stumble and fall and I have to try it again. And the only way I could ever have pleasure or favor with God is if I continue to and consistently always do good and always be right and all those types of things. And man, who wants that? Right? My early experiences of church, like, my early experiences of Christianity wouldn't be one that was fun, enjoyable, full of praise and rejoicing. The closest thing that I can recall to enjoyment was the pastor, when he would get up before he would preach, as he climbed his tower, he would always quote a psalm. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, he would quote the psalm. Let us, or today, let me, let me, let me back up. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And he, he said it like he meant it. And I was just like, okay. And then we would respond in a way that just doesn't seem to fit with what he just said. Because we would then sing as a congregation and in a very somber and depressed way. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm like, it just doesn't, something not there. And I like, listen, I get it. I'm just telling you my experiences. I'm not trying to make any kind of like overall judgments, but this is what led me to some like conclusions in my own journey. My experience in the church growing up and the people around me, like what I experienced was burdens, like a lot of rules and a lot of like, like, like methods and structures and systems that I have to be part of. I remember being told I can't have Catholic friends because I'm a Lutheran. And I was like, what? And I would get detention for having a Catholic friend. And I'm like, joyful. Like, like, I, like I just remember like just over and over and over all of these things that didn't just happen to me to, but to my family. And, and like, I just want to be like honest and fair. Like I could maybe possibly not have enjoyed church because I was actually a very hyperactive kid and I truly had no desire to be there because it was boring, 
Right? Like that, that was very much true. But the reality is, I have yet to have tasted and seen the beauty of Jesus. So all I knew was just the facade. I, I was blinded to the beauty of Christ because that's what scriptures tell us is that the enemy of this world has blinded us from seeing Jesus. And so, of course, if I'm blinded, I'm not going to see the spiritual reality and the beauty of it. I remember experiencing people using God's word as a means to shame me and to guilt motivate me into being good and right and a good religious person. And so all of these experiences that I had, I concluded that joy was nothing but an illusion, that God actually never truly meant to fulfill the desire of joy. It was just a carrot that he would dangle out in front of us to get us to move, but yet we will never actually get that carrot. That's how I thought it was. And so I just went, you know what? I don't know if I want to give my life to this. And I remember reading some of these passages that I learned in middle school, in, in, in the Christian school that I was at. And I was very confused. And to be honest, like I was frustrated by reading them. Because these verses command us, command us to rejoice in God. And then also because I couldn't understand the beauty of Christ, I went, what kind of person commands someone to praise them? My experience, a narcissist. And so, like, I had a hard time making sense of these scriptures, like Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And I'm like, why? But that Hebrew right there is a command. We're commanded to delight ourselves in the Lord. Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy. This is a command, all you upright in heart. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 2. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. And I remember actually being like guilt manipulated by that one. Hey, you got to serve with joy. Okay. Like Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. And then you start reading about commands to rejoice in suffering. I mean, if you don't see the beauty of Jesus, you read this and you're like, Christians are crazy. First Peter 4. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. I remember reading all of these and just being like, God is sick. He's commanding me to praise him. I mean, get it, if he's God, he can do what he wants, but I've never experienced it. I, I mean, I don't know much about you, but I really don't enjoy being around people who are all about themselves, where every conversation has to boomerang back to them. You know what I'm talking about? They constantly are fishing for compliments or affirmations or accolades, and they just want to be recognized. They want to be the one that's in the center of all things. Like, that's how I thought of God when I was blinded to the beauty of Jesus. So it, 
my conclusion was, you know what? I'm going to spend my teenage years pursuing whatever I want because this is not it. And that's what I did. Just like Solomon, I withheld no pleasure from my life. I would go after relationships. I would try to excel at sports and become like, you know, the, the star baseball player. I would excel in trying to be popular and get people to like me. And, and I would even like steal and finagle circumstances in order to like get wealth and money because we were poor, but all my friends were rich and I wanted to kind of like fit in. And so I would do all these things. And man, I am telling you, it was a six day out of the seven days a week party of constant pursuits of all of these things because I thought, hey, this has to be it. So I'm going to run after this and I'm going to go after this and I'm going to withhold nothing. But it led me to only one place that I can describe as a living hell. An absolute living hell. Because everything on the outside looked good. But this heart was hardened, was blind, was dead and wounded and scared, felt unseen, not sure, disillusioned because I thought, hey, if I got this, like culture says to go after, if I got X, Y, and Z, then I would be fulfilled. But every time I would achieve whatever it is that culture said to go after, and when I would achieve it, it would disappear. And then it would just leave me going, come on. And it just felt like a cyclical pattern that would never, ever end. Every treasure that I believe that would provide the joy that I instinctively crave because I'm created in the image of God for the sole purpose of enjoying God. So everything I would go after only created gloom and darkness. And I would try to put up a facade and I would try to be all good on the outside, but man. And the only way to continue to have that joy is to continue in whatever that indulgence was at increasing measures. Dictions settle in. And I understand, like, guys, I get it. My experience isn't your experience, but I'm telling you, our context, what we go through in life, I know you can resonate with me at some level. I know that. So I go off to college. And I'm going to college believing that this is going to be a fresh start. New relationships. Nobody knows me. New opportunities. New hope. New interests. New things to pursue. New relationships. Opportunities to play ball. New treasures to find and discover and to delight in. And the grass is greener over here. But it became evident so quickly that that too is fleeting and momentary. And when that reality hit home, and I don't say this to be dramatic, it's just my story. Hopelessness, depression, settled in. Darkness was overbearing. So heavy that it was hard to get out of bed. Couldn't see any glimmer of hope or light, and it only led to one conclusion. So I get a phone call. My dad calls. He gives me some advice. He says, go to church. I'm like, you got to be kidding. 
Yeah, there we go. It's already disappointed me. I already went down that journey and found it wanting. But the darkness was so heavy that I had to. I, I had no other option. There was either try it or end it, was kind of how I was seeing it. And irony of all ironies, the sermon that morning at a free church was on gluttony. Greedy or excessive indulgence is what gluttony is. And I assume or suppose that that defines every single person alive. Because we're in the pursuit of pleasure. And that message poked at my heart to the point that I had to reach out and connect with a pastor. And, and I heard a word that I'd never heard before. Grace. The love of God that's undeserved. It's unmerited. And it was so foreign to me. I, I, it was like at first, like you ever like eat something and it was like someone's like, try it, it's really good. And the first bite you take, you take it with hesitancy and you're like, mm. but the more you chew it, you're like, Oh, hey, grace, the undeserved love of God. It, it penetrated my heart like, like nothing ever before. God doesn't love me for who I ought to be or who I should be was healing to the heart. Because I was just like, wait a second. I thought it was all contingent upon my good behavior, hence the carrot in front of me that I could never get to. But God's like, listen, Grace, I love you. I created you. I understand that you're sinful and you've now separated yourself from me. I get that. And I get that you are pursuing every single thing that the wind blows your way because you're lost, you're blind, and you're spiritually dead. I love you so much that I came to do everything for you, that the only thing you have to do is to receive this gift of undeserved love. And I'm going, what is this? I was told about Jesus and how Jesus is the radiance of God himself. Like if you want to know God, you just look at Jesus and just study the gospels and he came to take on my sin and to give me his, his life, his righteousness, so that I, my heart, can be awakened to the beauty and the love that's only found in him. He who knew no sin became sin. He died on the cross, which means he took on my guilt, he took on my shame, my brokenness, my dead and hardened and wandering heart. He took on my punishment for rebelling against him and he offers me life and not just any life but a new creation life a fullness of joy life where nothing can touch that joy life a life that has been reconciled and restored with God where now I can walk with him again and talk with him again and be in relationship with him again. And all of a sudden I discovered the greatest discovery of all discoveries. God enjoys me. Get out. Does that sound foreign? God enjoys you. Not for what you can do or what you've done, 
because you're his child. I'm starting to get it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not physically dead. Not even intellectually dead. This is spiritually, emotionally dead. You cannot see realities. You can't grab hold of spiritual truths because of the sin. You can't enjoy God. You can't love God on your own because you're dead. Previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that's working in disobedience. We previously lived among them in our fleshy desires, our old nature, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Hey, I'm going to go after that. I'm going to go after this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to think this. I'm going to go after here. All of that. And we were by nature children under wrath as others were also. But God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he, he, not you, he made us alive with him even though we were dead, you are saved by grace. And I remember the pastor saying, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart as he showed me that passage in Romans, like trust on him for the forgiveness of your sins and trust on him as your Lord and Savior and believe that he loves you and that he's gonna cause his spirit to dwell in you and that you're a new creation inside of him. I was like, oh my goodness. And I vividly, I'm telling you, I vividly remember the day at this cafe in Winona, Minnesota in the year 2000. I was sitting in that exact bench. I remember it. Like, I look at that and I shake. I sat there wanting to die. pastor told me about grace. And something moved inside of me. Something truer resonated deeper inside of me than anything I've ever heard, anything I've ever seen, anything I've ever experienced in my life. And I knew I couldn't walk away from that grace. And he invited me to pray. We good Lutherans we don't pray with our own words. We pray what we're told to say. And sometimes we sing it. And he was like, I want you to pray out loud. And I'm like, looking around. I'm like, can we wait to close? And I remember praying, and I, I can't tell you what I expected to happen. I, I have no idea. I just knew I couldn't walk away from this grace. It resonated so deep inside of me. And I remember saying amen in that booth. And the moment I said amen, my eyes opened. The college pastor looking at me is like freaking out because one minute ago, I was ready to end it. And I said amen. And a flood of joy overwhelmed me like I never experience and I've never 
be honest with you, experienced it since. Glimpses, yes. But it was so overwhelming that what felt like for two nights, I was living alone in, a bar, in an apartment, a deficiency apartment above a bar by myself for two nights. What felt like two nights, I'm jumping on my bed. I'm shouting. I'm rejoicing. I'm praising God. Friends, I didn't know worship music. I'm making stuff up. I didn't know. It was just overwhelming. And I, like, I would read scripture and it was like alive, like never before. And I would walk out of my apartment and my neighbors would look at me and they're like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing. I tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You want some? Like I, I, I just, it hit me. I get it. I will never understand joy or enjoying God apart from his grace and his pursuit of me. I will never understand it unless I come to see that he so loved me that he did all to come after me. And I remember reading Augustine, church father. I want to read this for you because I resonate deeply with this and it's so incredibly beautiful. Augustine describing his conversion, he described it as a triumph of God's joy. Now I understand why David was saying this song, restore unto me the, come on, joy of my salvation. I'm like, oh man, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of all of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. Speaking of God, you who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor. And what I didn't know then that I know now is that to pursue joy is to pursue Jesus. And Satan hates that, and he's going to go after you with everything in his power to take you away from enjoying God. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How could it be that the church missed it? How could it be that I missed it? These are great questions. Because as C.S. Lewis says, and I love this quote, this is selfish. I love this quote. I just wanted to say it because I love this quote. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Isn't that so us? I understand why apart from God's grace and us placing our trust in him, we can never experience joy in God. It's because we are dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. And we know this if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say 
you, you can't eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it, she adds to it, or you will die. No, 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 no. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now watch this. The woman saw, she saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Isn't that temptation? Isn't that how our pursuit of pleasure starts? We're like, oh, it does kind of look good. And maybe it will satisfy. Okay. She ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of them were both opened, and they knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. Adam and Eve had infinite joy, pleasure, good all around them. All around them in increasing measure. They not only had all of the gifts that came from the giver, they also had him, him, uninstructed and unhindered. Psalm 1611. Like, I want you to think about this because this is what they had. They had the path of life, abundant joy, eternal pleasures right there with them. The fruit looked good. It looked delicious. It even had the promise if they pursued it, it would, you know, and they consumed it, it would make them wise. Oh, what a deception. Wise? No. But a form of awareness? Yes. Now they're aware to that they can make decisions of what is good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. And, and left to our own devices and our own sinfulness, we will always choose what is wrong? And the fruit, my friends, listen, the fruit is a representation of all that we desire more than God. And his infinite, everlasting pleasures. They wanted, <laughs> I read this and I'm like, it's so pathetic. But then I look at my life, I'm like, yeah. They wanted fruit. They wanted fruit more than God. See that fruit for what it is. Look what God is saying. Here. Wanting fruit more than God is a great definition of evil. It's a great definition of evil. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. Be appalled at this heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. I, <laughs> this is God speaking to the heavenlies, to the angels. He's like, God, hey, be shocked at this. Look. Into which the angels are like, what are they doing? For my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me the fountain of living water, the source of all fulfillment, desire, joy. And then they dug cisterns for themselves, systems and methods and opportunities to pursue that cannot hold water. He's like, these are two evils, forsaking God for fruit and then thinking that somehow we can build larger barns and larger things and have more friends in our network and more accolades and more trophies and more blah, 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 whatever it is. And God's like, it holds nothing. 
This is what killed our hearts. And that's why Jeremiah says in 17, verse 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things. <laughs> Who can really trust it? David says in Psalm 51, 5, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when I was conceived. We are born this way. And the danger for the church and the danger of our lives is that we can act religious and appear that we're good and yet miss it completely. And we know when saving faith has taken root is because we will always long and thirst and hunger for more of Jesus. And we will not be satisfied until we have it. Even if we walk away for a bit, even if we drift away for a bit. I'm thankful for God's grace. Because apart from it, I could never experience the joy that's found in God. We, I can never love God. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says something that's very hard. It's one of those verses that are like tucked away that we don't often read. But it says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. In other words, that means you're still dead in sin. Because you can't love God until the grace of God has entered in your heart. When we're made alive in Jesus, we should be like the guy in Matthew 13 who finds a treasure in a field. Keeps it there, doesn't tell anybody initially. Sells all that he has just to get that treasure, to buy that field with joy. With joy. My heart is that you start to see how often the scriptures talk about joy and praise and delight and pleasure, and it's all found in him. Is Jesus your treasure? The Westminster Catechism says this, and this is the heart of this series. The chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. Those aren't two different ends. They are one. To know God is to enjoy God. And when you enjoy God, you know God more. And the more you know God, the more you enjoy. The more you enjoy, the more you know. That's eternity, my friends. Eternity isn't harps on clouds with Hallmark babies. It's an ever-growing awareness of the beauty that's found in Jesus. That's heaven, and we get a taste of it now. So here's how I want to end. Some of you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Some of you maybe have been religious and have done things. <laughs> I've tried this, I've tried that. Church is stupid. I hate church. It's all restricted. It's all this. They just want me to have a miserable life. Yeah, that's true if there's no grace. 100% true. 
But when grace enters, freedom and joy and abundance. So I want to encourage you, turn to him. Turn to him. Look to him. Pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see him, to know him. Not just words on a paper, but experientially know him. Run after him, church. Run after him. Look to him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Go for him. Look at everything else in your life, like Paul says in Philippians 3, and consider it. Can I swear in church? Is that okay? Can I, can I, I just want to speak Greek. That's all it is. It's in the Greek. So I'm not really swearing. I am speaking Bible. <laughs> Sorry. I'm trying to make myself feel better about what I'm about to say. I consider all things rubbish, dung. That word in the Greek is skubalon, which literally means shh. I can't do it. I can't do it. I just... Paul did that for dramatic effect. Because what do you do with it? (laughs) You don't keep it around. He said, I consider it all that because there's a greater, greater treasure. There's something far greater, knowing Jesus. So church, here's what I want to challenge you on. It's Hosea 6, verse 3. Hosea 6, verse 3. Church, let this be true of us. Let us strive to know the Lord. Turn to him. Run to him. And his appearance as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like spring showers that water the land. Let's strive to know the Lord. And let's go after that command in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And there's a promise attached to that. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Your desires will be fulfilled primarily through him. But because he is your greatest delight, now the gifts that he gives you, you can handle because they won't become idols. Delight yourself in the Lord. And yes, church, even when it's hard, when everything is miserable here on earth, and it's so easy for a preacher to say it, but when you're in it, we need these words to penetrate our hearts. We need to look to Jesus who endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. We, too, no matter what happens in our life, we need to bank on Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18 as a verse that we hang on to. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, and though the flocks disappear from the pen, and there are no herds in the stalls, friends, like, this is like we're destitute. Your bank account, zero. Home, foreclosed. Health, ravaged. Yet, yet, I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of 
my salvation. That's why I can have joy. It's because I know that this is temporary. This is temporary. When we're called to praise the Lord, when we're called to praise the Lord, as C.S. Lewis says, praising God doesn't just simply express enjoyment. Praising God completes enjoyment. Maybe that's why God says, bring a sacrifice of praise. You don't feel like it, do it, because it's going to complete enjoyment. So I asked the worship team just five minutes before the service started to play a a song that we know, and if we don't know, let the words wash over you. But it's simply this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the thing, and as you do, and the things of earth grow strangely dim. Like, how is this possible? It just disappears. In the light of his glory and grace. Lord, I thank you that joy is a gift you give and that we were created to enjoy you and to love you supremely. Thank you that um, we love mud pies. We, we love the fruit and we despise you because somehow we have become convinced that to taste you is to be tasting something bitter. Lord, forgive us for believing that lie. Lord, I want to pray for any um, person in this room who has yet to taste and see that you are good. God, I ask that you would invite them to your table and that you would grant them repentance. Lord, would you give them an appetizer this morning? Would you surprise them? Would you do something so evident that it's you in their hearts? God, I pray that we would be a church that strives to know you. I pray, God, that we would be a church that is captivated by you and that we would fight for this joy. That even when we wander and fall and pursue other things, God, that we would be quick to repent. And I love how Paul says that later on in that chapter. He says, I I haven't attained it yet. But what I do when I fail, I, I get back up and I continue to keep going after the prize. Lord, I pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would constantly draw our hearts, the eyes of our hearts to look to you, Jesus. God, would you use these words to minister to our hearts now in Christ's name.